Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, The Risen Life, in which we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and consider what Jesus' resurrection means for us who have been raised to new life in Christ. Here's Pastor Nick. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20. So Gospel of John chapter 20, that's where we're going to be studying this morning as we continue in our current series. Listen, I'm not sure exactly how it started or when it began, but I do know this, that at some point I began to struggle, and I was struggling hard. I mean, it got to the point of being a full-blown crisis in my life. I was living in Hungary at the time, and I was pastoring a church. Rosemary and I had just had our first child. Our son Nate was six months old at the time. And like I said, I was pastoring a church that Rosemary and I had started. And at this point, the church was doing really well. We had just finished getting registered as a, as a legal entity, and, and people were coming. People were growing in their faith. Uh, others were coming to faith for the first time in their lives. I was teaching the Bible twice a week, Old Testament on Wednesdays, New Testament on Sundays. And as I was doing that, something began to happen. As I was standing in front of people teaching the Bible, I was plagued with these thoughts. Like, is this even really true? Here I was, the guy talking about it, telling people about it, and yet in the back of my mind, there were these nagging questions. How do I know this is even true? Maybe I just believe this because other people told me it was true, and I just took their word for it. I I began having doubts about whether God even exists at all. And there I was, the pastor, right? Up until that point in my life, I had never struggled with believing. I had never struggled with believing in the existence of God. Or if you would have asked me, is the Bible true? Even if I didn't walk with God at certain times in my lives, there there was definitely a belief in my heart that these things were true, even if I, I wasn't living them out. And now here I was, for the first time in my life, teaching the Bible, pastoring people, and I was plagued with doubts. And I didn't know, who do I talk to about that? I'm the pastor, and I was worried. Where is this going to lead to? Like, what's going to be the end of this? And so I knew I needed to do something. Well, that began a journey in my life, which eventually led to me uh, enrolling in university and studying Christianity and world religions and the Bible at the university level. And as a result of that journey... Uh, I'm at a place today where I can tell you with, with certainty that I am more confident than I've ever been in my entire life right now that the Bible is, in fact, trustworthy and the gospel message of Jesus Christ is true. Now, maybe some of you have struggled with doubts in your own life as well. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with doubts. Maybe the people sitting next to you don't even know it. and You have doubts inside, uh, doubts in regard to believing in God or trusting in Jesus or, or whether you can really trust or believe in the Bible. Now, here's what I would tell you. Everyone struggles with doubts sometimes. But what matters is what you do with your doubts. I'm going to say that again. Everybody struggles with doubts sometimes. But what matters is what do you do with your doubts? Because here's the thing I believe. That rather than being a sign of spiritual collapse, doubts can actually be a sign of faith that is screaming out for substance and truth. 
right? It doesn't necessarily mean spiritual collapse. Rather, sometimes doubt can be the sign of faith that is really screaming out for substance and truth. And that's why if you respond to your doubts in the right way, if you respond well, your doubts, rather than being the end of faith, they can actually be the catalyst which leads to you digging in more and seeking more. And as a result, it can lead you to deeper, more robust faith in the end. You know, a friend called me up recently and they said, you know, I have, uh, I don't, they, they said this, I don't know what to do because I have a family member who was raised as a Christian, but now he says that he's having some doubts. He isn't sure anymore if he believes or, or if he can believe. And his friend, and this friend told me, you know, they, they asked, what do I say? Help me out. What, what do I say to this person? How do I help this person move from doubt to belief. And maybe some of you, you can resonate with that question. Maybe there's somebody in your life who comes to mind when you hear that. Maybe it's, it's actually you, and how, you're wondering, how do I move from doubt to belief? Well, to answer that question, we're going to look at the story of one of the most famous doubters in all of history. You probably know him by this name. You've probably heard of him. He's called Doubting Thomas. But here's the thing about Doubting Thomas that I want you to remember. The Doubting Thomas, he didn't remain a doubter. That's the interesting thing about his story. At one point, Thomas moved from doubt to belief. And I kind of feel bad for the guy. It kind of reminds me of this guy I heard about who uh, he said, um, you know, his nickname was Stinky. And he said, you know, I had one bad day in the eighth grade, and then for the rest of my life, I got to live with this nickname. Everybody's calling me Stinky. Well, that's kind of like what it's like with Thomas. He's like, Guys, I doubted for like a week, okay? Can you cut me some slack? Like, just call me Thomas, right? We can drop the doubting. Maybe you just call me Believing Thomas because I believe now, okay? Guys, like, come on. Uh, you know, and now I'm stuck with this nickname forever. Just call me Thomas. Maybe Tom, right? Just stop the doubting, Thomas. But listen, as we look at Thomas's story, we're going to see what it took for him to move from doubt to belief and we're going to talk about what that means for our lives today. The title of today's message is From Doubt to Belief. And here's what we're going to see in this passage. Here's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence. I encourage you to write this down. Write it in your notes, in the margin of your Bible. Take a photo if that's what you got to do. But take this with you so that after you leave here today, you remember it. And this is also going to be our outline for studying the passage. You ready? Moving from doubt to belief involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, and responding in faith. So we're going to take that sentence and we're going to break it down as we study our passage today. So first of all, moving from doubt to belief. Let's just talk about that. Moving from doubt to belief. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting in verse 19, here's what we read. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You know, we've read about this same event in another study we did just a couple weeks ago where we studied Luke chapter 24. We read about this event where on the day when he was resurrected, the very first Easter Sunday, Jesus that evening met with his disciples. And as he met with them, he showed them his wounds, his hands and his side where the spear had gone into his body and had pierced a hole into his heart to make sure that he was surely dead. 
And it says there, the disciples, as they saw Jesus, as they put their hand in his wounds, it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Isn't that just like the understatement of the century, right? Like, they were glad. No, no, no. They were ecstatic. They were overjoyed. Their Savior was alive. He had conquered and defeated death. But look at what it says in verse 24. But Thomas... One of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was running errands. Maybe he was doing something else, but he wasn't there. And verse 25, the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, I will never believe. See, Jesus had been crucified. Of course he didn't believe this. Jesus had died. That's not something that you just like get up and walk away from. He'd been stabbed in the heart and they buried him in a grave. And so Thomas figured, surely this can't be true, what these guys are saying, that Jesus has resurrected from the grave. There must be some other explanation for what they think they saw, Thomas thought. And here's what Thomas said. He said, look, the only way that I would ever be willing to believe that is if I could see Jesus with my own eyes and I could put my hand in his side. If that doesn't happen, then I will never believe. Now, on the one hand, Thomas was not asking for anything which the other disciples hadn't already received, right? The other disciples had had the opportunity to see Jesus with their eyes and put their hand in his wounds. So Thomas is essentially saying, what those guys got, I want to have that same opportunity. And yet, Thomas declared, that he would never believe unless he got those things. He was unwilling to accept the testimony of the other disciples, his very best friends in the entire world, who were all saying the same thing. And if you think about it, listen, if you never believed something, unless you saw it with your own eyes, unless you could touch it with your hands, well, that would exclude a lot of things. You know, we do this all the time. We exercise faith and belief based on other people's testimony. We do that all the time. For example, think about this. Thomas had never seen Moses. He had never seen Abraham. Thomas had never seen Babylon. He had never been to Rome. And yet he believed that all of those things existed. Why? He believed it based on the testimony of others and the evidence that existed. And yet, when it came to Jesus' resurrection, he was unwilling to accept the testimony of even his very best friends. Why would they lie about this? Maybe it's because the stakes were too high. Thomas said, you know what? The stakes are way too high. I can't just take your word for this. Maybe it was because the claim was so outrageous. Maybe it was because he figured this must be a dream. It must be a hallucination. They just want to believe that this is true. So they kind of convinced themselves that they made themselves believe that it was true. And yet, here's the other thing. If Jesus really did resurrect from the grave, then it would be really no big thing, right? For Jesus to come back and hang out with his disciples again. I mean, he spent every day for three years with these people. It would only make sense if he's alive again that he's going to meet with them one more time. So maybe the expectation was reasonable. But either way, look at what it says in verse 26. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were once again inside. Now, we don't know if this was inside the same house. We don't know if this was in Jerusalem or if it was in Galilee. I tend to think that it was not in the same house. It was actually up in Galilee, and here's why. Because in the other Gospels, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he told them, 
on that night, he said, now I want you to go up to Galilee. And in a few days, I'm going to meet you up there. All we know, we don't know where this happened, but we just know that once again, they were inside a house behind locked doors. And it says that Jesus came to them again. And he said, peace be with you. That sounds like a really churchy thing to say, but just understand that's just the normal Jewish greeting. Shalom. If you go with us to Jerusalem, to, to Israel, you'll hear people say this. It's just how they say hello. They say shalom. So Jesus comes into the room and he says, shalom. Hi, how are you? Right? And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. And then he says, do not disbelieve, but believe, but believe. Now, Jesus tells him this, and I want you to see this. Jesus wanted Thomas to move from doubt to belief. He says, Thomas, you doubt. That's okay, but I don't want you to stay in that place of doubt. I want you to move from doubt to belief. And here's what that means for us, and I want you to take note of this. Doubt may be a station that you pass through at different times in your life, but is not meant to be a destination where you remain. It's a station that we all pass through at different times in our lives, but it's not meant to be a destination where you remain. There's an interesting line in the book, Life of Pi. Maybe you've heard of it or you've seen the movie or read the book. Here's the line. It says this, doubt is useful for a while, but eventually we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is like choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Doubt is an inherent part of faith. Do you realize that? That part of having faith always implies that there's, a, there's an area, there's a way in which you're having doubts at the same time. If you didn't have doubts, you wouldn't need faith. You see, this is the thing. This is what the Bible tells us what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we're told that faith is having confidence in things or conviction about things that you cannot see. So if you could see it, you wouldn't have to have faith in it. And yet, we have to have faith. In other words, here's how I would put it for you. Doubt is not how faith ends. Doubt is not how faith ends. Rather, doubt is where trust begins. Doubt is where trust begins. Now, the Bible makes a clear distinction between two different words that I think sometimes get confused. The first one is doubt. That's what we're talking about. But the other one is unbelief. So in the Bible, it's really important to understand there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a struggle to believe. But you know what unbelief is? Unbelief is a refusal to believe. So doubt is a struggle to believe, but unbelief is a refusal to believe. Doubt is a tension in belief, but unbelief is a decision that you will not do it, right? It's a refusal. You know, sincere doubts, you could think, what are, what are doubts? Doubts are essentially unanswered questions, aren't they? That's what a doubt is. It's an unanswered question. I like to think about it that way, and here's why. Because the word question comes from the Latin word from which we get our word quest. And that's what a question is. It's a quest. What's a quest? It's a journey that you set out on. It's an adventure. And what do you do in that adventure? You are diligently looking for something. You are seeking something. And your goal is not to stay on that quest in perpetuity, not just to stay on that quest forever. Your goal in that quest is to find the thing that you are looking for. That's the purpose. And so the goal of the quest is not to stay on quest forever. It's to find the thing you're looking for. Now, there are a few ways that I think people commonly respond to the idea of doubt, right? So a few common responses to doubt. One common response to doubt 
is to demonize it. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. You've expressed some doubts or some questions, and people have said, hey, hey wait a second. You're asking too many questions. Stop asking questions. You know, stop, uh, stop, stop worrying about that and just believe. You know, stop, stop asking these questions. Stop digging into these things. You should just ignore your doubts and believe. Maybe people have made you feel bad for having doubts or expressing doubts. Well, that's one way is by demonizing doubt. The other extreme of this that a lot of people respond to doubt, which I think is really popular today, is to idolize doubt, right? There's this sense in which some people don't demonize doubt. They go to the other extreme. They idolize it. It's kind of cool right now. It's like faddish to say that you're deconstructing your faith, right? You, 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 uh, you don't want to believe just because other people believe. So you're deconstructing. You're uncertain. You, you're undecided. And people who idolize doubt, these are people who view doubt not as a station that you pass through and eventually move past, but they view doubt as like the destination that they hope to arrive at, the place where they have no intention of ever moving beyond. They want to just doubt and stay there forever. That's idolizing doubt. But if we look at the Bible, if we listen to Jesus, we have to conclude that neither of these two responses is acceptable. It's not acceptable for us to demonize doubt. We can't do that. But neither can we idolize doubt. The, the proper way, the biblical way to think about doubt is this, recognizing doubt as an opportunity to grow in authentic and vibrant faith. I like how Frederick Buchner put it. He said, doubts are like the ants in the pants of faith. They keep you moving and alive, okay? They're the ants in the pants of faith. They keep you moving and alive. See, here's the thing about doubts. We want to believe things that are true, Right? And therefore, the truth is never afraid of honest questions. Truth is never afraid of honest questions, never afraid of inquiry. It's never afraid of investigation. Because if something is true, then any inquiry, any investigation will only serve to prove that it's true. So we want to encourage people to ask questions, to dig in, to, to ask those questions. So the Bible doesn't demonize doubt. You know what it does? Actually, the Bible, here's what it says about how we should react to people who have doubts. Look at what it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 22. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. It's a very interesting passage, and we're going to study it in more detail next week, but it's in Matthew chapter 28, where we read that after Jesus' resurrection, he met with his disciples on a certain mountain in Galilee. That's what it says there, that they went to this mountain in Galilee where Jesus told them to go. And check out this next verse. It's incredible. It says this, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Think about that. How incredible is that? There they are. They're looking at Jesus with their eyes, and they're worshiping him. And at the same time that they're looking at him and worshiping him, some of them are having doubts still in their hearts. But you know what else this tells us? This tells us that it is possible to struggle with doubts and still worship Jesus at the same time. I'll tell you that one more time. It's possible to struggle with doubts and still worship Jesus at the same time. But here's the thing. If you just suppress your doubts, if you try to ignore them, if you try to brush them under the rug and, and pretend they don't exist, not only will they not be resolved, but they will come back later. They're not going to go away. They'll, they'll pop their head up in the future. And I just want to encourage you, parents in particular, if you have kids who have questions about God, if you have kids who express doubts when it comes to believing in Jesus or, or following Christianity or, or believing in the Bible, I want to encourage you, 
Don't discourage your kids from asking those questions. Don't discourage your kids from expressing their doubts. And I'll you, that's not just true of kids either, by the way. If any of you have friends or family members, loved ones who are expressing doubts, don't just try to shut them down. Don't suppress those things. Hear them out. Listen to them and do the best that you can to sit with them and answer those questions. Tell them why you believe. Tell them that there are real answers out there. Help them find those answers. In our day and age, they're more easy to find than they've ever been at any point in history ever before. And there are excellent answers out there to all the questions that people have. If you don't know where to get those answers, talk to people who do. Talk to brothers and sisters in the church. Talk to our church leadership. We have four books in our, in our bookstore right now that are on this topic of answering the questions that people have. In fact, our book of the month is one aimed at teenagers to answer the questions that many teens today are asking. Listen, we don't want to discourage people from asking questions. Rather, we want to encourage people to keep asking questions, to keep seeking, to keep knocking and pressing in and asking those tough questions. Here's why. Because we sincerely believe that deeper faith calls out to us from the other side of our sincere questions. Deeper faith calls out to us from the other side of our sincere questions. And we believe that God will be found by those who genuinely seek him. Listen, just as Jesus told Thomas, the goal is not to remain in the place of doubt. The goal is to move from doubt to belief. So how does that happen practically? Well, let's continue on in our sentence for today. Moving from doubt to belief involves, first of all, hearing testimony. Hearing testimony. You know, the one thing I really like about Thomas is this. At least he was honest. At least he was honest that he didn't believe. He didn't try to pretend. He didn't try to placate the others by saying, okay, sure, I believe. No, no, no. He was honest. And he said, I, I won't believe. Now, I don't agree with the standard of evidence that he demanded, but I appreciate the fact that he was honest. And yet, look at what Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29. In verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, Thomas was in a unique position. He lived at a time, and he lived in a place where Jesus was physically present after his resurrection. But what if Thomas had not had the opportunity to see Jesus, to put his hands in his wounds? Would he have been willing to believe simply based on the testimony of others? Because listen, for the majority of people throughout history, that's the exact situation that we're in. If other people had taken the same tact as Thomas and said, I won't believe unless I can put my hands in his wounds and see him with my eyes, then Christianity would have died out within one generation. But here's what's so interesting. 1 Peter and 2 Peter, in those two letters written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were spread out all over the Roman Empire, but by that time when Peter wrote at the end of his life, there were multitudes of Christians spread out all over the Roman Empire. And so Peter wrote to these believers, many of whom were experiencing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And he told them two really important things. The first thing he told them is found in his first letter. Here's what he says in, in chapter 1, verse 8 of his first letter. He says, brothers and sisters, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That was the first thing he told them. Even though you don't see him, you believe. But here's the other thing he said in his second letter. He said this, listen, the things we told you about Jesus, 
They are absolutely true. And you can be sure that they're true. They're not myths. They're not fables. We were eyewitnesses of these things. That's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw these things with our own eyes. We know that they are true. In other words, Christianity, as it spread around the world, it spread based on the testimony of those who had seen and touched Jesus. But for those who believed, and for us today, listen, moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony. It involves hearing testimony. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told about one particular incident where over 500 people saw Jesus at one time, in, in one place. 500 people saw Jesus at one time, in one place, after his resurrection. And these people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead, you know what happened to them? They weren't patted on the back. They weren't brought on talk shows. They weren't given book deals. They were persecuted for their faith, and they were persecuted in an attempt to shut them up, to make them stop talking about the fact that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. And yet, as we read in Acts chapter 4, the early Christians, they said, they declared, we simply cannot stop talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You know, in the book of Romans, chapter 10, Paul's letter to the Romans, he tells us this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. But we're also told in that same section, you know, he just, he just draws out that same idea logically. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can somebody call on somebody they've never heard of? How can somebody believe in something if they haven't heard the message? In other words, people need to hear. People need to be told. And what he's telling us, that moving from doubt to belief, it happens in part through hearing the word of God, through hearing testimony. Here in John's gospel, John tells us that this is his firsthand account. He says, these are the things that I saw, I witnessed, I was there. This is my testimony. Later on, when Jesus sends out his disciples into all the world, what does he tell them? He says, you have been witnesses of these things, and now I'm sending you out as witnesses, as my witnesses. What does a witness do? In court, think about it. A witness doesn't go there to talk about their feelings. A witness doesn't go there to share their opinions. A witness goes for one reason, to talk about what they have seen and what they have heard. And that's what Jesus told his disciples. Go into all the world. Tell everybody what you have seen and what you have heard. But you know what else is interesting? Not only do we need to hear testimony in order for us to move from doubt to belief, but other people need to hear your testimony to help them move from doubt to belief. Think about this. Every one of you who is a Christian, who has put your faith in Jesus, you have a story to tell. You have a testimony as well of what you have experienced with God. You have a story of how God has answered your prayers. You have a story of how you personally have worked through your doubts and come out on the side of belief. You have stories of how God has provided for you. And these stories, these are your testimony. This is what you have seen and heard, what you have witnessed. And there are other people out there who in order for them to move from doubt to belief, they need to hear these stories from you. You can't just keep them to yourself. Other people need to hear them to move from doubt to belief. But you know what else? It's not just, it doesn't just involve seeing, or yeah, hearing testimony. It also involves seeing the evidence. Seeing the evidence. Here's what's so interesting about this story. Thomas wanted more evidence that Jesus had really risen from the grave. 
And Jesus responded to that. Jesus gave him more evidence, didn't he? Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't shout him down for it. He actually gave him the evidence that he requested. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says this. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith, meaning add to your faith, right? You've got faith. Now I want you to supplement it. I want you to add something to it. What does he want you to add to it? Virtue and knowledge. Virtue and knowledge. In other words, Christianity does not say, hey, just ignore the facts, suppress your questions, and just believe. Ignore science, ignore history, just believe. No, 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 no. Just the opposite. You know what it says? It encourages you to pursue knowledge, to look into the evidence, to look at the evidence and see that it does indeed verify that what the Bible says is true. Now, there's a man named Lee Strobel. Maybe some of you have heard his name. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And Lee Strobel, he had a degree. He had two degrees, a bachelor's in journalism from the University of Missouri, and he had a master's in law from Yale University. And so with his bachelor's in journalism and his, his uh, master's in law, he became the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, and he actually won several awards, and he was doing well in life. And the one thing that ended up kind of messing up his plan for his life was this. His wife ended up becoming a born-again Christian. You know, one of those, right? One of the ones who goes to church and stuff, right? So she becomes a born-again Christian. She starts going to church, and he doesn't like this, right? Because in his opinion, you know, Christianity is for uneducated dummies who don't think. And so he says, you know, how could this be that my wife is one of these dummies who goes around believing this stuff? And so he said, you know, uh, probably much to his wife's chagrin, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my skills as a lawyer and my skills as a journalist, and I'm going to look at all the evidence, and I'm going to write a book. This was his plan. He is going to write a book showing that Christianity has been disproven by history and science and all that, and he was going to publish that book as a resource for other people, probably whose wives had also started going to church, right? So they could, they could teach their wives not to do that stuff. Well, listen, his plan was to write this book and publish it, etc. Now, he did end up writing a book, but the book he ended up writing was very different than the book he originally intended to write because as he did his research, first looking at the evidence for whether God exists, and then second, looking at the historical evidence for the Bible and for Jesus, he actually came to the conclusion that Christians are right and that the, what the Bible says actually does hold water. And he ended up becoming a Christian himself. And the book he wrote has now sold millions and millions of copies. It's called The Case for Christ. I would totally recommend it for you to check it out. But here's the thing. After hearing testimony, after seeing evidence, there's still one more crucial thing that you must do. There's still one more crucial step in this process of going from doubt to belief. And that's the last part of our sentence here, and that's this. Moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence, but you know what else? It also involves responding in faith. Responding in faith. We read in verse 28 that when Thomas saw Jesus, he responded in faith. Here's what it says. Thomas answered Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. Not only is Thomas no longer doubting that Jesus is really risen, he takes it one step further. He connects the dots, right? It doesn't take faith now to see that Jesus is risen. He's right there. 
What does take faith is for him to connect the dots and say, Jesus, you are risen, and that means that you are the Lord, and you are, in fact, God. And notice this. He doesn't just stop there. He makes it personal. He doesn't just say, you are God. He says, you are my God, and you are my Lord. I will follow you, and I will worship you. And here's the thing I love about Thomas. Once he got the evidence that he was asking for, once he saw the evidence, he didn't remain on the fence. He didn't remain undecided. Once he saw the evidence, he immediately responded in faith. And listen, friends, I need to tell you this. Once you have heard the testimony, once you've seen the evidence, there comes a point where you can't stay on the fence any longer, where you actually have to get off the fence and you have to put down your yes and you have to start trusting in Jesus and surrendering your life to him as your Savior and as your Lord. There comes a point where you have to decide. Remember what Jesus told Thomas? He said, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what that means is that there's a way in which, there's a sense in which believing in Jesus is a choice that you need to make. And Jesus is telling you, you need to make this choice. It's not just something that happens to you all of a sudden, that you wake up one day and, and it happens to you. It's also a choice that you need to make. You know, it's interesting. The Gospel of John begins by John telling us in the opening verses of the book that Jesus is God. That's how he begins the book. But you know how the book ends? After telling us about how Jesus lived, what Jesus did, what he taught, how he died and he resurrected, the Gospel of John ends with this other bookend where we see Thomas, a person who formerly doubted, declaring that, yes, Jesus is God. And look at what John says next. In verse 30 and 31, he concludes by saying this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John's telling us, look, cards on the table, okay? Full disclosure, here's what I'm all about. The reason I've written these things isn't just to tell you some cool stories of stuff I saw. The reason I wrote these things is so that you too will be like Thomas. So you will be somebody who started out doubting and you will move from doubt to belief. That's my goal. That's my purpose in writing these things. And you know what? I'm doing it so that you can have life. So that you can have life, abundant life here and now, abundant with purpose and joy and meaning. And you know what else? Eternal life that is to come after this life on earth is over. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And how does believing in Jesus uh, actually change your life and connect you with God? Well, think about it like this. Imagine that you're standing on a steep mountainside, right? Steep mountainside. And suddenly you, you begin to slip, right? The, the ground under you begins to slip away. And, and as you look down in that split second, you realize there's nothing to stop you from just sliding down this entire mountain face and crashing to your death. The only thing, in fact, is that next to you, there's a branch that's sticking out from the side of the mountain. And in that moment, you have a decision to make. Now, listen, this branch is strong enough to support you. But even if you, if you look at that branch and you do the math real fast in your head and you say, this branch is capable of holding me, it's not going to do you any help unless you actually reach out and take hold of that branch. Even if you know it can hold you, it doesn't do you any good unless you actually take hold of it. But you know what else? There's another, another aspect to this. In that split second, as you're looking at that branch, 
you might feel unsure that that branch actually has the ability to hold you. You might say, I don't have a lot of faith in this branch. You might have some doubts about that branch that is actually able to hold your weight. But listen, you know what? If you reach out and grab hold of that branch, in spite of your doubts, in spite of your lack of trust or lack of faith in that branch, even if your faith in that branch is weak, if you grab on and hold on to it, it will still save you. You know why? Because it isn't the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Listen, if you have a lot of faith in a very weak branch, that won't do you any good. You can trust in a weak branch all you want. It's still going to break. But listen, if the branch is strong and you grab onto it, even if your faith is weak, even if your faith is riddled with doubts, that branch will still save you because the branch is strong enough to save you. Now, in the same way, you can take hold of Jesus today. You can trust in him today. Even if your faith is imperfect, even if your faith is weak or even riddled with doubts, you can grab onto him today because he is mighty to save. He is trustworthy and you can trust in him. And you know what will happen? As you take hold of him, even with weak faith, as you begin to grow, as you begin to learn, as you add virtue and knowledge to your faith over time, your faith will begin to grow. Your faith will get stronger over time. But even if your faith isn't there yet, you can still take hold of him now with the faith that you do have. And my encouragement for you today is this. In every area of your life, respond in faith like Thomas did and say what Thomas said. Say to Jesus today, you are my Lord and you are my God and I entrust all of my life to you. Friends, moving from doubt to belief, it involves hearing testimony, seeing the evidence and responding in faith. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.